You sisters know that my skin has been glowing lately. And I'm here to tell you my secret. Oak Essentials. You've heard us talk about their line of luxurious products before, and we're so excited to have them as a sponsor of OK Sister Podcast because now you can join in on the glowy goodness. You know Oak Essentials is legit because it was created by none other than our favorite brand ever, Jenny Kane. Oak Essentials is known for its simple approach to self-care with a lineup of foundational skincare staples made with high-quality ingredients that drive results. It aims to unlock healthy, glowing skin with decadent and hydrating ingredients that give you a luxe, dewy glow. I won't shut up about the Moisture Rich Balm. It's a nutrient-rich balm that supports collagen production and delivers serious hydration for a luminous glow. And a luminous glow indeed. The way my skin feels like butter after applying this balm. This balm will make you never want to wear makeup again. And you can apply generously during your night routine to lock in moisture as you dream. It's the definition of beauty sleep. Treat yourself or someone else this season. You sisters will get 15% off and a free organic honey-based restorative mask with their first order. Oh my God, what a deal. When you use code OKSIS15 at checkout. That's right. 15% off plus a gift with your first order at O-A-K-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S.com. Promo code OKSIS15, OKAYSIS15. Go ahead and treat yourself. From luxurious skincare to meaningful self care, you deserve it. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in your face flavor orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either, but it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice, anything but subtle. Welcome to OK Sis Podcast. Hi, sisters. I'm Maddie. And I'm Scout. And we are sisters IRL. I'm the older one. Yes, Scout. We know. We're cultural observers. And of curious minds. Get ready for sisterly banter while we chat about fixations, learnings, and personal growth. We promise it'll be a good time. As long as you don't get too loud, Mads. Welcome to the sisterhood. Hello, my fellow bibliophiles. It is Mads, uh, but you already know that because you know the sound of my voice. And here we are on month three of the OKSIS Book Club, Romance Novel Edition. Hopefully, if you're listening to this, you have read The Soulmate Equation by Christina Lauren, which was June's book club pick. But if you have not, do not worry because I'm going to quickly summarize the book before getting into my conversation with the authors themselves, Christina and Lauren. If you haven't already, be sure to join our book club group chat on Bunches to discuss the book of the month along with other recommendations. There are so many awesome other female readers in there, so we'd love to have you in the community as well. The link to join can be found in the show notes and on our Instagram link in bio. 
So June's book club pick was The Soulmate Equation, which is about single mom Jessica Davis, who is a data and statistics wizard, and she is weary of re-entering into the dating world. Jess hears about Genetic Ally, which is a buzzy new DNA-based matchmaking company that's predicted to change dating forever. Finding a soulmate through DNA? I mean, that's something that she understands. At least she thought she did until her test shows an unheard of 98% compatibility. Wow, why can't I say that word? <laughs> compatibility with another subject in the database. One of Genetic Allies founders, Dr. River. Mm, mm, mm. She knows River to be stuck up and stubborn because he visits her local coffee shop and she sees him all the time. He's very brooding and you know stubborn. So she doesn't believe the results uh, were correct and she definitely does not believe that River is her soulmate. But Genetic Ally says that they'll pay her to get to know him as this PR stunt that's, you know, leading up to their launch to make it this whole marketing strategy. Jess, who is barely making ends meet, is in no position to turn it down. So despite her skepticism about the project and her dislike for River, she goes with it. So as the pair get to know each other, Jess begins to realize that there might be more to the scientist and the science behind a soulmate than she thought. Da -da 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 -da. All right, without further ado, let's get into today's discussion on the soulmate equation with Christina Hobbs and Lauren Billings. Hello. 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 How are you? <laughs> I'm doing so good. I am so excited to speak with you. First of all, um, how many times a day do you guys get mistaken for one person? Not as much anymore. Okay. I think like, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, for people who don't know our books, uh, we still will get some people not knowing, but, but sometimes we confuse people and they think we're like, um, a, they like, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. fine. Not yeah. But, um, so I have been a fan of both of you for so long. And I actually was one of those people that thought you were one person, you know, until someone was like, oh yeah, they, they wrote this. I was like, wait, oh, there's two of them. Fabulous. <laughs> I mean, the more the merrier. The more the merrier. Exactly. <laughs> That's my philosophy. So I just, I'm so curious, how did you both become writing partners? Because to me, writing feels like such a, you know, internal and solo activities so it's so fascinating that you guys have coupled up to to write these incredible stories um so this is christina hello yeah i was gonna say let's do a little like <laughs> introduce yourself so we can determine this. um so we met in 2009 at san diego comic-con um we were both writing fan fiction at the time and like sort of emailing and reading each other's stories and then Lowe was doing, uh, like putting on a panel on, on fan works and invited me to come down. And so we met, um, for the first time there and just had so much fun and got along. And like, strangely, we're just like, do you want to write a story together? So we wrote like a little short story together, like a one shot, a fan fiction one shot. And then, um, we're like, we had so much fun. We were like, Hey, do you want to write a book together? And we just decided to do that. <laughs> like you do, I guess. And, um, we wrote a book about like skinny dipping and, you know, magical powers and stuff that we've never published. And, uh, but it got us our agent and then, uh, we eventually sold the book and here we are, um, 27 books later. Oh my God. 
27 books. I mean, that's so incredible that you guys met in San Diego because the book in question that we're going to be discussing today, The Soulmate Equation, is set in San Diego. I am actually from San Diego, born and raised. So I was so delighted to see Bontai and La Jolla and all these places. Do you have you guys lived there before or what was the what why is San Diego special to you for this book's particular? So the location of the apartment building is actually a real building that's on Park Avenue um, and it's owned by my family. So my aunt and uncle bought that apartment building when they had both completely retired as a way to, as like investment, right? So they bought it, initially they rented out all the units and then when they were sort of too old to easily navigate all the stairs in their house, they sold their house in Mission Hills and um, because they lived on this super steep hill and they sold that house and moved into units in the apartment building. And then um, my cousin Amy moved in and then my cousin Matt and his family moved in. He's a chef. He is like the head pastries chef for the convention center. And so they just all live there and Matt has two kids and it's like just how it's sort of described in the, in the book. It is. It's just as wonderful. I know. Mm-hmm. And it's such a, yeah, like it seems like such a family affair, such a family bonding place. And so do you guys usually get a lot of inspiration from your family, from people? I kind of ask this a lot of authors, like, where do you get inspiration for names of characters? Like, is it actually named after people that you, that you know, or do you have like this like laundry list of names that you choose from? We do, we have a list of names that we keep in a notes app um, and sort of, we have some that we've kept forever that we want to use some point, but they just never fit the character we're writing. Um, in the case of this book, you know, Jess, her name is Jessica Marie Davis. So we wanted a name that was like pretty common because the whole point is that she's got, you know, she's named a J, her mother is a J, her grandmother's a J. And so she kind of felt like she was going to name her daughter a J, but she wanted to give her daughter an interesting name because she has always had sort of a common name. So she names her Juno, which is a name we love. And Juno and the love interest for Jess, River, they bond over this, you know, both having unique names. And so we wanted River's name to be, you know, something that's like different in the same way that Juno is, where it's like a unique name. Um, But, you know, so it's cute. Like we had sort of decided that they would both have unique names. But most of the time, we just kind of go through our list and decide what feels like it it fits the characters, you know? Yeah. So River to me... Uh, gives off Mr. Darcy vibes. You guys probably, you know, thought of this ahead of time. Um, Was that an inspiration for his character and this like brooding, you know, man, obviously calling her average. I think that like really stuck out to most people um, with that parallel. But was that something that you guys intentionally put in there? Um, Yeah. So yeah, he has, he has a lot of Darcy vibes in there, but also he's just a scientist. And so like when he calls her average, he doesn't necessarily mean it as an insult, like to be average is to be average. And, you know, so he doesn't necessarily mean it that way. And then also, you know, a lot of the times when he's walking in and like low wrote the like stride, 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 as he walks in, um, it's not even that he's intentionally being rude. He's just so stuck in his head. Lo is a scientist. She was a neuroscientist before this, then her husband is a scientist. And so I, 
like I see um, her husband sometimes when he's in that like science mode. And so it's just that he's just so lost in what he's doing and, you know, the things going on in his head that he's just not noticing anyone else. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it, it's, yeah, it seems like this insult, but then you, you learn about river and you understand that they are their minds just work in such a different way. It's more this analytical, pragmatic way of being. And yeah. yeah, there's something wrong with it. It's not insulting. It's just the way that their DNA, you know, I'll just throw that in there, Ooh. is made up. <laughs> um, I kind of want to go back because you you said that Lauren created the stride of him and then you kind of brought in elements of, of other parts of your writing. So what is the process like when you're writing together? Do you actually separate it out by themes or by chapters or what what does that actual process look like so we always outline together in person okay. um the only exception to this has been um in the pandemic we weren't able to do that for the book that we just finished mm. which is next year's book but it's it was okay that still worked all right but there's there's generally like just a vibe that happens when we're in the room together and we're on a trip together and we outline and we sort of talk it out and spend some time thinking about the book and then we go do some stupid best friend stuff. And then we come back and we cook dinner. And as we're cooking dinner, we talk a little bit more about the book and that's sort of how it flushes out. And then we go to our respective places. I'm in California, Christina's in Utah, and we usually alternate chapters. So if it's one point of view, like this book, you know, I'll do like one, three, five, seven, nine, she'll do two, four, six, eight, ten, And, um, we just draft pretty quick it's gotten cleaner as we've done this longer, but we're, we give ourselves permission to draft a little bit messy because we spend a ton of time in edits. And the reason we do that is we want it to sound like one voice. And so when you're talking about whether one of us handles certain things, I think in edits, that's probably where that happens more because we definitely draft equally, but when we're editing, there's certain things that I leave for Christina to add in. Like um, I might say like, you know, describe this location better and she'll come in and she'll do like a good description of the location. Or there might be some science stuff that she'll say, make science-y, you know, and she'll leave for me. And so I'll come in and I'll do those edits. And so, um, you know, we, we draft equally, but then we edit a little bit more fine-tuned our specialty. Absolutely. Um, okay, so then I need to ask, who writes the sex scenes? We both do. Um, okay. I mean, historically speaking, like there's, I don't think there's one of us that's done, done more of that. It also just depends on where it falls in the outline or if it's a dual point of view book and more of the sex scenes are in her point of view, for example, then whoever's writing the female character right. will tend to write those. But, um, yeah, we both do that stuff. Love yeah. That. I mean, so I, I recently got into romance novels and, you know, something that really stuck out to me in the soulmate equation was that Fizzy, which is Jess's, you know, wacky best friend, she is a romance novelist in the book. And so it felt very meta, but she brings up this stigma uh, that romance novels have where, you know, people can perceive them as trashy or guilty or like chiclet. And I've been loving asking all the authors that come on OK Sis, you know, I... I probably had that connotation with them as well, which is probably when, why I hesitated to read romance novels. And now I am just so dazzled with how warm and beautiful and like, and, and beautifully written 
these stories are. Like, I don't know where this whole perception came. And I think it's shifting a lot recently, which is amazing. So I just want to hear, you know, your thoughts on the genre in general, and then kind of why you made sure to insert that into Fizzy. Um, I we've talked a lot about how we think like as a society we tend to like things th think that things that are full of pain and suffering are somehow more valid or important than talking about joy or love and um particularly in the pandemic people just needed a happily ever after they just needed to know no matter what we take you on it's going to be okay in the end because none of us knew that for sure um, so I feel like hopefully that's getting better, but also, you know, some people have this idea that romance novels are like, he tears her bodice and throws her over the back of her horse or whatever. And romance novels are very feminist. They're very modern. I like, I feel like, like a lot of social change happens in romance first, particularly like right now about consent and diversity, um, things like that. And then, I actually think writing romance is hard because people know how the story is going to end. Um, you know that they're gonna get together in the end and you still have to maintain that tension and keep people turning the pages. And that's a tough thing to do. It's like knowing who the murderer is on the first page. Mm -hmm. Ever since having a baby, I've been extremely conscious about what I spend my money on and which products I use. And clothing is no different. I want my wardrobe to be sustainable, good quality, and timeless. You have to be talking about Whimsy and Row, right? Whimsy and Row is an LA grown eco-conscious brand born out of the love for cute, comfy, and classic styles. Every piece is made by women for women. Quality goods, local production, natural and organic fabrics. Yes, please give me all the linens. Just like OK Sister, Whimsy and Row is based on the idea that women are multidimensional. There's a balance of flirty feminine and minimal masculine in all of our wardrobes, and Whimsy and Row means exactly that. From special occasions to everyday effortless styles, their clothing is meant to mix and match and wear on repeat. I have been wearing their Kira pant in black linen probably three times a week. Sisters, if you've been listening to this podcast or following me on Instagram, you know that Whimsy and Rose Kira Pant in Black Linen is a sisterhood staple at this point. Founder Rachel Temko created the brand back in 2014 because she wanted to create an approachable and inclusive brand that cared for the people and the planet first. Get the full Whimsy experience IRL at their Venice location or shop online at whimsyandrow.com. Their store in Venice is so cute. I can attest. And if you're in LA, I highly recommend stopping by. They are always putting on these amazing community events. They just launched their spring summer collection and we will be living in it all summer long. Visit their website, whimsyandrow.com. That's W-H-I-M-S-Y-A-N-D-R-O-W.com and use code OKSISTER for 15% off. Okay, sisters, let's talk about hair shedding. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started seeing a little more of your scalp? Hi, I've been there. When it comes to thinning hair, there are many root causes at play, and Nutrafol addresses them through a multi-targeted, whole-body approach. Ugh, thinning hair just isn't the vibe. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. Amen. 
Everyone's root causes of hair thinning are different, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth just doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow through different stages, such as postpartum, like me. After I gave birth, I noticed that around the crown of my head, my hair was shedding. I've been taking Nutrafol for almost three months at this point, and I am not kidding you when my husband, my friends, my family have been commenting on how long, strong, and healthy my hair has been looking lately. I mean, sisters, if you've been watching OK Sister on YouTube, you've seen my hair. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplement for six months. I mean, 86% is a lot of women. Take their hair wellness quiz on Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code OKSIS. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code OKSIS. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code OKSIS. Sisters, my goal these days is to always look put together when I leave the house. Nothing over the top or super dressed up or anything like that. I just want to look put together and feel good about what I'm wearing in an effortless yet refined way. When I look at my closet every single morning and think about what I can wear that is chic and intentional, I usually end up grabbing one of my Jenny Kane sweaters and I always end up loving the way I look and the way I feel in them. You all know, sisters, that when I envision my highest self, I am wearing Jenny Kane. Their sweaters are the quintessential must-have item. I cannot stop wearing my Marina set. I throw it on and immediately feel like I'm in a Nancy Myers movie, like I could just walk on the beach in Santa Barbara. It is the coastal grandma aesthetic. My favorite Jenny Kane sweater right now is their everyday sweater in taupe. This is the definition of a staple that every woman must have in their wardrobe. Sisters, trust me on this one. I wear it with leggings, oversized jeans and a little kitten heel or a silk maxi skirt. Legit, Mads and I are so obsessed with wearing our Johnny Kane sweaters that we've literally shown up both wearing the same sweater once. The white alpaca cocoon crew neck, which is this deliciously oversized sweater. Yeah, that moment takes the cake. Both of us walking in with our matching Jenny Kane sweaters. We're obsessed. Can't take them off. Wearing them every day. The type of staples that save your outfit. That is what I love about their entire collection. It is truly the art of simplicity. They focus on comfort, quality, and timeless design. So you can curate a wardrobe that never goes out of style. Find your new uniform at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use code OKSIS at checkout. That's 15% off your first order, J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code OKSIS. O-K-A-Y-S-I-S. Let getting dressed be one less thing to worry about. That's so true. Have you guys always been romance novel fans? Or is this something that you've recently also, like since you started writing it, became more involved? We've 
we've always been romance readers. I mean, I think both of us, that was what we gravitated to when we were, you know, getting, when you're old enough to really choose what you're picking up. And for me, that was probably around the age of 12 or 13 when I started having my own opinions and using my allowance to go to the, the used bookstore and get Danielle Steele books. You know, I think there's a whole bunch of us that like, we're just always sort of oriented towards swoony books. You know, we just wanted stories that had love stories as a primary um, story arc. So yeah, I mean, I had been writing since I was younger. Christina discovered writing her love for writing through fan fiction. Um, and I think that just like writing romance was something we naturally gravitated toward. We have so much fun doing it. And, and when we write together, it's, you know, it's almost... It's not easier because there are challenges that are present with co-authoring that aren't present when you're writing alone, but you have an audience of one. I just, my only job is to entertain Christina. Her job is to entertain me. If we are both happy with the outcome, we can be pretty sure that our readers are going to like the book. Like that's a tried and true formula at that point. So it's just nice that we have this one opinion that matters. Um, and given that we're both romance fans, you know, that's sort of where we are. That's where we lie. I love that. I love that you guys are so in tune with the readers and it definitely, it feels that way. It comes off the page. So I want to talk about just in general synopsis of this book. I mean, it was so incredible. And again, with the tension and I really, I, I also had no idea where this was going to go. I was like, there's no way they're 98%, but like maybe, but you know, so where did this idea originate? And honestly, I think we need a dating app that's like this, right? Or, or is there one that exists? Like, it's kind of rough. I mean, companies have tried. You know, there are some companies that have tried to do matchmaking based on DNA. The issue is that they're, they're looking at a handful of DNA signatures. And, you know, not to get too philosophical about it, but if you're looking for similarity in your genome, you're that's sort of eugenics-y, right? You're sort of looking for people who have a similar gene, which, you know, arguably is not the best way to find eternal health. Yeah, it's like the opposites attract. It's like, yeah, <laughs> why would you need, why would you want to marry someone that's like right. your exact replica? And, yeah. Or if they're looking sense. at a sort of a compatibility signature, there's no way that they're doing a longitudinal study that's big enough to really look down the road 30 years in marriages, right? right. So in fiction, we can do that because we don't, we have the time, right? We can pretend that this research has been going on for this many years before the book opens. And so in this case, we say, okay, well, it started 10 to 13 years ago. They've been tracking happily married couples for this number of years. And they have this huge collection of genes that contributes to like a different algorithm that we like put into a neural net network and it comes out with an answer at the end. So we get to do a bit of hand-waving in fiction. But, you know, when we were talking about how to make this, you know, we did some research and there were some companies that were trying to do matchmaking based on DNA signatures, but they were looking at like three or four genes. So the way that we were thinking about that was, okay, well, if you have a genome of 20 to 25,000 genes and somebody's looking at four, that's like giving a dating questionnaire of 20,000 questions and you overlap with somebody on four questions. Like that's just not super predictive. Right. And so we wanted to be, you know, we wanted to think about it. Well, like it's this whole array of genes. You're looking at patterns, you're looking at compatibility, you're looking at things that can predict long-term happiness. And it was just kind of fun. We just got to be sort of dorky about it, you know? And I think a lot of that came from 
we're doing 23andMe, you know, we're looking at ancestry, you just spit into a vial and you learn all this stuff about yourself and your family. And so it does seem a little bit like, why not dating? Uh You know? I love that. So do you guys have a number of what their compatibility actually was at the end? Or do you, or you're just like, we'll leave it to the reader to imagine what it would be. I mean, we had, we had it in the book, I think. Right. And then did you? No, no, no. I'm asking Christina because I think we had it in the book and our editor was like, let's leave it a little bit mysterious. Let's leave it on. And, and so some readers have like been like, I love that we don't know. And other readers are DMing us like, what is yeah, they're oh, like, yeah. what is it? Because we, we had a totally different thing where, like, he doesn't look or, you know, he does. It was like this discussion. Yeah. But but we do. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't completely, or it didn't feel like he was that worried about the number. So I think it was pretty Well, high. I mean, we do I, have I, him say it's a, yeah. we have, in, I think it's in the epilogue. It says something like our new diamond yeah. match. So we know there's still a diamond. Okay. Yeah. That's good. That's all yeah. we need to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about Juno because she is just this ray of sunshine throughout this whole this whole book. And, uh, you know, Jess is a single mother. There's that whole dynamic of her and her grandparents and, uh, you know, her also not having very reliable parents that had left her and, and she feels abandoned in that way. Why all these other themes that that pile onto her as as a character why why was that important for you all to um uncover I mean we see you know a really tragic moment where she has to go pick up her mom from uh you know this party and uh you know it it does add so much depth to Jess and what she's experienced and what she's been through um but would love to hear kind of uh just the making of her and and why all those parts fit um, I think it's because like every decision that Jess makes is for Juno and her like decision, whether or not she's going to like pursue things with River is because of Juno and whether or not she should date is because of Juno and her mother and needing, you know, needing money for ballet and health insurance and all of those things. So it's like, it's like her motivation, everything that she does is to not be her mother, to be a better mother than hers was, um, to, you know, like deciding not to date in the beginning. She doesn't want to like disrupt Juno's life and have guys in and out of her life in the way that it was for her. So that's why, you know, she tells Fizzy early in the book that she's just not going to date until Juno is in college and Fizzy is just not here for that at all. But to, you know, to Jess, it sounds totally logical that that's what she would do. Um, So I think, when we decided that she was going to be a mom, it's, you know, part of that was because like we're moms and everything we do is like this balance of guilt. Like as a mom, uh, like we are a vessel of guilt. We think every decision we make somehow impacts our children negatively. So um, I just think like that just made Jess who she is. Yeah. I mean, you, you, she's so young too. So it is frustrating because I mean, I think she's even my age and I feel like, I wanted to shake her and be and say no like go out live your life and date and have these fun experiences but obviously being a mother that is an experience that matures you exponentially and makes you think of obviously a lot of other people in your life that you have to adhere to so I I totally see that balance in 
every decision that she made. And I mean, I think River being as patient and amazing to Juno was just the best, the best piece of it all. Because I think for that, for her, then it was okay. I can see him fitting into this story of mine. And he was so loving towards that. Do you, why do you think that was like, why do you think River was so game to just drop everything and pick up Juno from, from school that one time and uh, really become completely selfless. I mean, we, we soon realized at the end that he is that person, but uh, it seemed very out of character for him, at least in the, that first time that he did that for her. I mean, I think there's a couple different reasons. One is that, you know, the number 98 gets Jess interested, but it wouldn't work for her if he wasn't also perfect for her daughter. Whereas for River, he sees that number and is immediately is like, okay, what do I have to do to explore this, right? But there's also a piece that I think we haven't really talked about because not that many people have mentioned it, which is that if Jess is a 98 for River and all of this is based on DNA, Juno has Jess's DNA. There's going to be a connection between Juno and River too that transcends, you know, any of the sort of, you know, it's measurable. This is the science that he believes in. And so River is going to feel a connection to Juno um, in some of the same way that he feels a connection to Jess. So I think there's both the piece of him wanting to be whatever person he has to be to make that 98 make sense to him. But also there's a piece of him that's just, he doesn't completely control that is drawn to Juno as well. And so, you know, you see a little bit of that at the end when they're at the science fair and she sits up straight and he sits up straight and Jess is kind of just looking at them like she's not biologically his, but she is biologically his because Jess is biologically his, right? Wow. Um, and that, that was just a fun layer, I think, of the romance is when you have this, you know, obviously platonic romance between a father figure and this little girl yeah I mean exactly what we were just saying that a DNA match doesn't necessarily mean it has to be romantic it can be just compatible right. in any other type of situation and relationship that you have in life that's an amazing right. oh my god wow yep I didn't uh didn't put that together but now now we now we put it together <laughs> um okay so you guys mentioned that you have another book coming out next week or next week next year how next week you know one, one a week um how uh, how long does this process take it feels like you guys are like spitting them out every year it's amazing um our answer is that it takes us as long as you give us <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> so like uh um we have written a book in six weeks before and we have written a book in oh six months or um it just depends um we're we slowed down a little bit just because our books have like more world to them now they're like bigger they're a little more complicated and that just takes some time sometimes for things to really work out our next book is um like a play on romancing the stone meets the hangover and so it's like this treasure hunt through the desert and um we had to like build this treasure hunt and you know all of these things that took so much more planning and stuff than um two people falling in love is is hard don't you know on its own but then adding in this other layer of stuff so it's just nice to have more time to like 
let it percolate a little bit and then go back and have lots of time to change things and fix things. And, and also like we wrote our first year, we had six books out and we had all these ideas that we had probably both been just like mentally chewing on for a few years, at least, if not more, but that's the low hanging fruit, you know, like once you get 27 books, do you have an idea? What's around me? <laughs> you're like, what stories do we need to tell? And what have we already done? And I mean, some you're talking about names and like, do we have a list yeah. of names? Yes, we do. But also like, how do we make our characters distinct from each other? You know, now we have more than 27 female characters we've written because there's multiple characters in each book and we have to make sure that each one feels fully realized and distinct mm -hmm. um and that just takes a while oh my god i mean yeah so. i mean you also you mentioned creating a world i mean it's an entire it's an entire process and research that goes into creating a whole world and it's so it's so interesting to me that you guys share it so well it blends both of your brains into this world and you both can visualize it and see it together that's it's incredible okay before we get into rapid fire i do i need to ask about the sex scenes because i'm so fascinated by authors that can write really great sex scenes only because i think if done poorly it can come off very cheesy and cringy almost so is there something that you have to do in order to write a good sex scene or is there a formula like what what goes into it I know we talked a little bit about obviously the woman is at the forefront there's consent there's female pleasure at least that I've every romance novel I've read in the past couple years it's always been about more of the female is the star in it which is so refreshing it's sad that it's refreshing but it is uh so we'd love to hear a little bit about your process of like the actual mechanics of writing something like that I think that the, for us, each, the, the sex is dependent on the characters. So like the things that they say and the things that they do mm -hmm. have to relate to those characters. So like Unhoneywooners is one of our like most closed door books. And we tried to make that book sexier, but it just doesn't work because that's not who Olive and Ethan are. So they have to say things that make sense for them and do things. And then for us, it's not just like the physical parts of what's happening. It's like everything that's going on in their head and what they can hear and what they can see and how this is going to change things that happen tomorrow and, you know, all of that. So, and we have word like we have words we don't like in, <laughs> in sex scenes and ways we like things done. And so, um, yeah, it, I mean, it just, it changes for every book. And I don't know, Lo, what do you think? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think you, you, it's something you get to be comfortable with over time. And because we wrote fan fiction first and there was this anonymous safety net of like, you can write something and nobody knows that it's Lauren Billings in California. You know, they just know it as this pen name. So you just, you can be daring, you can be kind of, brave and try stuff and I think because we had both written so much sexy stuff before we published we had this understanding of like okay I know people have historically found this stuff for me to work pretty well and so we just try and get better over time sometimes that means the books are sexier and sometimes it means they're less sexy but it just it has to fit the characters you'll find I mean in romance you'll find books where like yeah and I mean, I can't think of a single name right now, so I'm not calling anybody out, but like, you'll, you'll read a book where she's like, and raised in a small town and this is her first sexual experience. And she's like, 
in the very first scene, <laughs> she's like wearing that. a reverse cowgirl and like, you know, saying like dirty stuff. And it just, it doesn't yeah, it's like, fit the uh... person. Like you have, it really has to fit the character and right. it can't read like every other sex scene that you've written before. So I think that's a lot of it is you have to think yeah. about who these people are and what they are giving each other and also what they're kind of like, what ground they're losing or gaining in this, this, the sex move the story forward it can't just be yeah. a scene that you plug in right that's so true that's so true it has to have have some sort of meaning or some sort of uh progression through the story i i totally mm -hmm. agree with that yeah like in beautiful bastard they they have sex in the first chapter i think i mean within the first few, like 10 pages at least and like but the tension in that book isn't resolved mm. until the end because that, that is the only time that they are ever real with each other, you know? And so they have to figure out how to be vulnerable when they're not in that space. And that's yeah. what's hard for them. Whereas other people, you know, they work their way up to feeling comfortable enough to have sex with somebody. And so the sex happens later in the book. It just depends on the- Yeah, it's usually you know, that tension breaking is the sex scene at the end. It's like this mm -hmm. whole thing that builds up to it. But yeah. that's interesting that if it if they have sex earlier on in the book, like they're, I mean, I just read The Roommate by Rosie mm -hmm. Dolan. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Rosie and yeah. they, well, they don't have sex, but he- you know, makes her come very, very early yeah. on. And I, I, but of course there is this underlying tension that continues and it's not even about that scene. It was just this, their relationship deepening to a point at the end where they actually fall in love. And then it's this like beautiful experience. But I, t I totally see that it has to work for, for each of the character for sure. Yeah. And that's a great example too, yeah. because in that book, I mean, it's very sex positive. He is a porn star, yeah. you know, so it makes sense. that. And so she's sort of falling for him, but also, you know, she's like, this guy does this for a living. I am nothing to him. Yeah. Like this is life altering experiences for me. And for him, it's like 20 minutes at the job. Right. right. So like, you know, she has to reckon with that sort of feeling of like, can I measure up? This is really great. Like, and also, you know, just trusting that he is this total perfect golden retriever yeah. dude. He's so sweet. I love him. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a really yeah. good, that's a very okay, good. Okay. So let's do a little bit of rapid fire before we uh, get going. I love to ask this question um, because I, I just love to hear people's perspective on this. What does literary success look like to you? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. One of the things that I love is I will see a tweet. This is the thing that like makes me the most happy. Somebody will say, I'm looking for a book that is something, something. And I will see, read this book, read this book and anything by Christina Lauren. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. And, and I think, you know, That's for perfect. us, we're on book 27. So just having readers still show up for book 28, to me, that's success, right? If we still have people who are tweeting us and we do, every day i've been reading you since fan fiction that is like to me that's success if you carry your readers forward that's it 
I love it. Um, okay, what is your favorite underappreciated novel? Of ours or of any any in the genre? Either. Okay. Or no, let's do yours since you guys have, I mean, a bajillion. Okay. I, would, I would say Dating You, Hating You. It was our first standalone romance and it's super okay. funny and I love them so much. And I think people were, readers were used to series from us. So they kind of, it was like sort of like a weird speed bump kind of changing gears to start with a completely new thing and not be doing series. But I do think it's actually one of our best books we've ever written. It's, I think it's really yeah. good. It's hilarious. It's our sort of like take on um, nine to five, mm-hmm. but it came out like like right at the election in 2016 and right bef- and before me too. So I almost feel like it was a little ahead mm-hmm. um, because there's like a terrible boss and sexism in the workplace and stuff. And that book cracks me mm-hmm. up. So I would love for more people to find it. Oh my you. God, for sure. Okay, that's next on my list. Thank you for mm-hmm. giving me that wreck. <laughs> um okay what we i mean we said you edited it out the actual number uh that they are their compatibility store their actual one at the end but is there anything else that you edited out of this book i know we had a couple of scenes that we cut or trimmed down a lot because um we had just it was just wordier Mm. our editor really wanted us to get to the first date by a certain point and so oh, yeah. we had a lot of scenes where we had more scenes of Jess and Fizzy just being ridiculous um, and they I were mean, great it was kind of a kill your darling situation because they were really great scenes but they also yeah. did things forward and yeah. so um, we just those were probably ones that we trimmed down um, yeah I think that I could have read a whole I could have read a whole book on just them too I mean I, I why don't, let's why make Fizzy the main character let's, <laughs> yeah. let's bring her back a follow-up yeah, we we are we are hearing that, and I think you know we're considering how we could do it. The thing about Fizzy is that she's a romance writer, so we wouldn't want it to feel a little too like inside jokey. You know, we want yeah. readers to feel like they aren't in on the joke if we write about a romance author, um, or we wouldn't want it. To I mean, like Beach Read. Emily Henry did kind of a similar thing with Beach Read, uh, where she's a romance novelist. But yeah, in that in that story, which is a great book, January is not zany in the way that Fizzy is. Right. Totally. So Fizzy is just a big personality and she's, she's funny and she's big and she's brave. And that works really easily as a side character because you don't have to get into her head and find her vulnerabilities. But once you chip away at people's external humor and defenses a little, they're more like bare. And so figuring out a way to make Fizzy who she is without losing that edge, I think is what would be the tricky thing in making tricky her main thing. character. Yeah. Well, as a fellow uh, ecstatic person and big personality, would love to see your take on that of chipping away at the, yes. <laughs> at the exterior. Yeah. Would love it. I feel like it would be meta for me, so that's great. Um, okay, last one. What was the hardest scene to write? Um, probably the opening. I think we um, did that for a really long time. Um, this book was, is in third person. And third person passed. And so we were drafting it that way and it just wasn't working. It just didn't feel like it had any voice. And so we decided to draft it in first person, um, present tense, um, to make sure it sounded like Jess, like sounded like somebody that you would know. And then we went back when we were done and um, rewrote it in third person past tense. I should say, I was going to say, went back you like literally and made those changes. Go, like, well, yeah, you have to go word for word. And change it. 
Yeah, yeah, because it's not just like changing, you it know, depends. I yeah. to she. Yeah, yeah. It's you rewrite right. the book, but it's already there. But so you, the thing is, when you're doing a polish, when you're doing line edits, you're rewriting anyway. You're mm-hmm. already revising every sentence, so it's tedious to do that. But it is also, I felt like in this case, was worth it because we yeah. really figured out who Jess was, and then we kind of were able to take a step back yeah. in the narration. And it really made a difference. It read differently doing it that way as opposed to trying to draft it. That way so interesting is it's, it's actually yeah. something I don't notice, uh, which I, maybe that's the point is that I don't notice that it's either first person or third. Do you guys gravitate towards one or the other, or is it just really dependent on the story and the character? Well, we had most of our stuff has been written first person. Right. Um, since dating you, hating you, it's all been first person present tense. Love, in other words, there's alternating past and present, but it's all first person. And so I think that that's a more natural voice for us. And that's very common in romance. It's very mm-hmm. sort of experiential. But, um, you know, when you're, this was our first book in hardcover. And so when you're going for a commercial audience, a commercial audience is more accustomed to reading third person. They might not realize that. People, yeah. Readers might not know that about themselves, but that's something that like the industry is aware of. And so our editor was like, listen, just so you know, like, most people who read in hardcover are going to be familiar with third person. And so first person might just read a little too like genre to them. Right. Mm. And so it was just something we tried and, and it worked and it was fun. Um, I don't, I think we've maybe heard one person say I miss first person, but most, oh most piece, most people say don't, either don't notice or are like, I love this. So it's so fascinating. Yeah. Wow little in the morning now and it was crazy when the first when she did the first chapter and sent it we were just like oh my god this reads so like i don't know money yeah because <laughs> we always say that we're like with like something selling out i'm ready no no no, no not like that just like it just read so much more like uh, polished polished yeah 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 there's something, uh, yeah, I can understand that it could feel like more, more, more mature in a way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It, it feels like you're like an observer in a way, but mm-hmm. still in it. That's so interesting. Um, all right. Let everyone know where they can find you both. You mentioned Twitter. Can people tweet at you? Can people reach you there? Let, you know, let everyone know where they can find you. Um, on Twitter and Instagram, we are Christina Lauren. Mm-hmm. Um, on Facebook, we are Christina Lauren Books. And then we have a Facebook group called So C and Low. So C Low and Friends. And it's just a bunch of awesome people who just talk all day. I mean, mm-hmm. makes sense. Yep. I'll be joining that ASAP. Uh, thank you, ladies, so much for doing this. This is like a dream of mine. I have been reading your books for so long, and so I'm so happy that you guys were able to come and do this with me. Um, the sisters, our, our audience is going to freak out when they hear from you. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. It was super you. fun. Thanks for having us. Have a good one. You too. You too. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey there, I'm Dr. Tracy Dalglish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. If there's one thing I know from both my personal and clinical experience, it's that we are really good at comparing ourselves to others. We tend to get stuck in the unhelpful narratives that play on repeat in our minds, and we struggle to set boundaries and create healthy love. Each week, I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair, and being a wife, mother, and business owner to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you you change the dialogue in your life. Tune in every Thursday to I'm Not Your Shrink wherever you listen to podcasts. While I'm not your shrink, I am still human and I'm excited for us to be in our vulnerability and humanness together.